I invite you to Acts chapter 18. We'll be picking up at the end of this chapter, Acts chapter 18. In March of 1989, English physicist Tim Berners-Lee submitted a proposal that changed the world. His idea was to build a computer system of information storage and retrieval. He proposed a system of interlinked hypertext documents that by means of browsers and hyperlinks would allow people to access information in text documents, videos, pictures, with lightning speed on the internet. Berners-Lee teamed up with Belgian physicist Robert Kalau to submit a formal proposal in November of 1990, and by the end of the year they had all the tools that they needed to construct a working web. They called their hypertext project the World Wide Web, W3 for short. The web marked a quantum leap forward in communications, linking the planet in a way previously unimaginable and forever changing the way that we live our lives. Every one of us, even those among us who have never touched the web and hope never to do so in this life, every single one of us has been changed. We live with this awareness that we are linked to a global web of shared information like never before. That sense of global interconnectedness with respect to information should really pale in comparison to the sense that as Christians we are linked to the world wide web of Jesus' disciples proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The true church is a worldwide communion of Jesus' followers. It is linked by the indwelling Spirit of God to spread the gospel of Christ crucified and risen in the world, baptizing converts, grounding believers in the apostolic faith, and fitting them to meet Jesus Christ, establishing these churches, these connections for the glory of God and in the project that Jesus is carrying on to reach a world for Him. We are not to see ourselves as merely isolated believers pursuing private devotion, are we? We're not to see our local church as a fraternity of like-minded cave dwellers who have no interest in ever going outside the cave. We are part of the body of Christ, who by His Spirit forms a web of born-again witnesses and gospel outposts used by God to shine forth the light of salvation in Jesus. And as vibrant participants in this grand network, it is utterly essential that we not introduce the debilitating virus of false doctrine, but continue to align ourselves with the apostolic faith. There are churches that don't believe what I've just said. And their idea is to be very accommodating, to allow the truth to be compromised, to work with one another so that we're on the same page and that we all love each other without thought about the purity of the doctrine that is taking that message of Christ into this world. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. And it is our calling as the followers of Jesus to move toward that controlling center in cooperation with the Spirit of Truth, the mission of the reigning Christ, and the network of His people 
who hold the gospel faithfully throughout the world. I'd like us to carry that sense, that awareness of the work that Christ is doing in this world and how believers work together to accomplish that task as we move into this latter part of chapter 18 of the book of Acts. In this first segment, we focus particularly on Apollos and the apostolic faith, noting first of all, under that larger heading, Paul strengthening the gospel web in Galatia and Phrygia. Think of it as this web spreads, as its connections deepen, as the work progresses over these last 2,000 years. Paul strengthening this gospel web, verse 23 of chapter 18. After spending some time there, which is of course Antioch, Syrian Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. There must have been some bittersweet memories as Paul came back to Antioch and remembered the battle with Barnabas some three years earlier. But this was home for Paul, as much as any home could be on this waking planet. Can you imagine, though, the joy that he had as he shared the stories of the second missionary journey? Imagine sitting there at the great evangelist's feet and hearing the account of the conquest of the gospel. How the Holy Spirit hindered the team's efforts to evangelize the province of Asia and rerouted them across the Aegean Sea. About the ministry there at the river in Philippi, starting in such a strange way, certainly didn't seem like much was going to happen at Philippi, but the conversion of Lydia and her household, the demon-possessed girl, and then that being imprisoned and beaten. Then there was the earthquake in the middle of the night and a jailer who was about to commit suicide who at that place made a great turn and spent the rest of the night washing the wounds of Paul and Silas and hearing the gospel, responding with his household, being baptized, and before the light of dawn, putting Paul and Silas back in prison. Imagine the stories about Thessalonica and Berea standing before the great Areopagus at Athens and proclaiming Christ there at this seat of intellectual power. Think of the fruitful ministry of Corinth as he recounts to the Antiochian church how Jesus encouraged him with these words of assurance, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, encouraging the church with the presence of Christ as he carries on his mission to conquer hearts for eternity. What tremendous stories they must have been. But as we noted last week, it certainly appears purposeful that Luke downplays this visit to Antioch. The issue is about the mission. And Paul does not stay here very long. Indeed, he will never return. Likely through the winter months, Paul collects resources. He assembles his new team, bidding farewell to his beloved church, not realizing that he's saying goodbye for good in this life, he sets out in the spring of either 52 or 53 on his third journey to spread the gospel. He journeys north out of Antioch, turns west through the Sicilian gates, a pass in the Taurus Mountains, makes his way ultimately to Ephesus some 1,500 miles to the west. 
His immediate focus is what? What do we find here in verse 23? It is to strengthen all the disciples in this region. Certainly, ministering to the believers surrounding the churches that he had started on his first journey in Derby and Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, strengthening them at the start of the second journey and now also at the third. Once again, he returns to these places, to these precious converts. And it reminds us again that evangelism is not merely sharing the gospel with someone who's never heard it before or someone even who's not, simply not converted. But evangelism in Christ's way of thinking is discipleship making. And so he strengthens, disciples these believers as he builds them up in the faith. How is he strengthening them? Certainly through the teaching of the Word of God, deepening their sense of true theology, allowing them to see more from the Scriptures, certainly by means of shepherding their hearts for God, desiring them to love Him with all of their heart and soul, drawing them forward for the Lord. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on as he strengthens these believers, there's another minister of the gospel who is found teaching the word of God in Ephesus. That's rather a strange element in the book of Acts at this point. But I think Paul is purposely bringing out this concept. There are others who are ministering the gospel. Now we know they are. There are many in, uh, throughout the Roman world. But here one is brought forward specifically, a fairly unique character. Remember back in 18 and verse 19, as Priscilla and Aquila with Paul come to Ephesus, he leaves them there in the synagogue, reasons with the Jews. They want him to stay longer. He's just breezing through town, says, I can't, I perhaps will be back. He's now set to come back to Ephesus, but there's somebody here already ministering the gospel where Paul is headed. We read of Apollos beginning at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. As we look at the original text, we learn that Apollos was an intellectually gifted, spiritually zealous, eloquent man of God. This fervent spirit, or literally boiling spirit, burning with zeal, generated by the Spirit of God, he preached God's truth about Jesus accurately, verse 25, and boldly, verse 26. Apollos hailed from Alexandria, Egypt, the second largest city in the ancient world, the leading intellectual and cultural center of the Hellenistic world. And here he apparently received the teaching of God's Word and knew the Old Testament Scriptures well. According to many in Corinth, in fact, Apollos was a better preacher than Paul. And that developed to some rivalry, at least in the church at Corinth. But there's this strange idea that he knew only the baptism of John. We could wish that Luke would explain a good deal more at this point in the text, but apparently the message about Christ that Apollos preached was faithful. It was certainly powerful and eloquent, but ultimately it was lacking. As a follower of John the Baptist, he knew about Messiah to whom John pointed. But Apollos was oriented to John's baptism of repentance 
and preparation for Messiah rather than to the baptism that focused on the believer's union with Jesus crucified and risen. We don't know why. We don't know the nuances of his thinking. But he's a faithful, good man who needs to be deepened in the gospel of Christ. Now remember who's sitting there in the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla. And I imagine they're saying, this man really understands the scriptures. He's an excellent speaker. But as they're listening, they're saying, there's something missing here. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Not knowing the baptism of Jesus, Apollos somehow is stuck in the past. His theology was deficient in its grasp of the new age of Christ. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him. The Greek word is used of, remember when Peter takes Jesus aside? And it's actually translated that way in the ESV at Matthew 16. Peter took Jesus aside and privately instructs him there. Same word here. They take him aside privately and they instruct him. This is a beautiful scene and it says much about the great gospel network. It flows out of this idea. It, in a sense, it's in the background, but I think we can understand it here. We see these individuals working together in the gospel. A couple of observations, three in fact. First of all is grace. Priscilla and Aquila do not attack Apollos publicly. They don't set him straight in front of the synagogue. But patiently they instruct him in private. They had the grace of God to know the difference between a preacher's heresy and lack of knowledge. And they're effective in the work that they do. Secondly, we notice Priscilla, a woman teaching a man theology. She's not doing this in the assembly, which would violate at least the principle of 1 Timothy chapter 2, dishonoring her creative role, but in private, along with her husband, as a sister in Christ, she joins him in teaching Apollos the scriptures, understanding theology more accurately. Third observation is the priority of the truth. And this is what's behind the whole scene, is the priority of truth. Something that we need as Americans in our setting to really grasp. Priscilla and Aquila instruct Apollos because his teaching is not fully in line with the truth. There is such a thing as authoritative, binding truth. And every genuine follower of Jesus Christ knows that a life of sanctification and repentance is a life that always moves to conform to that central core of divine revelation. Now we differ on all kinds of things that just we just need to be allowed to differ on and to work with one another and try to convince one another. But we also should have a sense as God's people that there is this core doctrine and you don't mess with it. It is the authority over every one of us. They don't say, you'll notice, well, isn't that interesting? This is Apollos, and of course he's from Alexandria, and he's not met Paul. He's, he's entitled to his opinion. This might be a little different strain of Christian teaching, but he's entitled to his opinion. We need to respect that and allow him to pursue truth in his own way. 
They don't say that, do they? Nor does Apollos on his part, this highly gifted intellectual from Alexandria, become offended by the teaching of two tent makers. There's only one way this works. And that's that they understand the core doctrine, the apostolic faith that has been handed to them. They must come to terms with it. Battles over doctrine are not to become competitive skirmishes for dominance over one another. They are not to be battles over turf and battles of self-promotion. Always doctrinal disagreement among believers is to be a mutual quest for the truth. And I will confess certainly those moments when someone challenges what you believe and what you've taught and it's a little bit of a battle to not feel intimidated by that or a little bit ornery about it. So I'll admit my sin, but I also will say to you, there's not a few days after preaching and teaching the Word of God that someone has said something to me and I run up to my computer in the office and type it into my notes. Because it's not about us. It's about the truth. And if anyone, including some of those who have not yet come to adulthood, who have made very good points about the text of Scripture, can help us understand true doctrine better, we should welcome them as friends. It's the core truth to which they come, and Apollos welcomes that. If we truly grasp the authority of Jesus and our role in the worldwide fraternity of believers, we will seek true doctrine in humble submission to Christ, and in grateful regard to anyone who points us in the right direction. We see the fraternal interdependence displayed in this home Bible study, and it points to their full realization that the mission belongs to Jesus. The doctrine of the church is wholly subject to the teaching of the apostles as revealed in the Scriptures. And a great thing happens here. Apollos is equipped, and he goes on. He's not offended doesn't take it personally. Priscilla and Aquila graciously help him forward and they want him to go forward. Because he was a good man who trusted Jesus, he gladly embraced the truth as it was carefully and graciously presented. And verse 27, he goes forward in the grace of God. When he wished to cross to Achaia, where's that? That's Greece, Macedonian call. Cross the Aegean to Achaia, this region in the Roman province in northern Greece. The brothers encouraged him. They encouraged him because he was growing in doctrine, a capable man, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. There he is strengthening the network. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So he follows this gospel web across the Aegean, the network that Paul had advanced in obedience to the Macedonian call. He ministers the gospel in Greece, supporting the believers that are there, and he has a twofold ministry. First, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. We see the emphasis again on the sovereign grace of God that has brought grace to individuals, brought them to saving faith. He's strengthening, building up the church as he shepherds it. Secondly, he powerfully refutes the Jews, taking the Hebrew Scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, much as 
Paul has been doing throughout the Roman world. Now, and we say, just hold on a minute here. Isn't this Paul's territory? Isn't Apollos trespassing on Paul's turf in Achaia? In fact, Apollos, as we find in 19.1, comes to Corinth. Paul had started the church in Corinth. He had spent more time in Corinth than anywhere else outside of Antioch. He had built these people up in the faith. God had uniquely poured out his blessing upon his ministry. And now here's Apollos showing up at Corinth. What is more, as we look through the texts of 1 Corinthians, we find that there were people who liked Apollos a lot more than they liked Paul. Uh, if, if you're a human being, I think somewhere in here you can kind of get the sense of how Paul might have felt about this. But what does he say? Paul's sense of awareness of the greater mission was so great, he realized it was not about him and his reputation, but about the reigning Christ. He said this in his epistle to the Corinthians. Just hear it. Think of all that he could say and think. He says this, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So neither he who plants, let's fill in words here, so neither Paul who plants nor Apollos who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul who plants and Apollos who waters, hear it, are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Paul and Apollos are fellow workers. Every faithful local church is a point of light on God's network and it belongs to him alone. Paul makes no claim on the Corinthians. Now I say that, it needs to be qualified, doesn't it? He speaks of all of these churches that he has founded as his little children. I have birthed you, in a sense, he, he would argue. He loves them, he would lay down his life for them, but they don't belong to him ultimately. They belong to Jesus. And this church, even though he is the founding pastor and evangelist of this church, it's not his. Our calling is to serve the purposes of Christ, not our own. And Paul demonstrates this so well outside of the book of Acts with respect to Apollos. But what we're seeing, coming back to the theme, is Apollos and Paul working together in the greater cause. The network is deepening, it is being enriched, it is being expanded, and God is raising up new leadership to continue to expand that work. For his part, we go in the second theme that's developed here in chapter 19 of Paul in Ephesus. It happened, verse 1 of chapter 19, that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. That's left very generic, and I think for reason. They're just disciples. They're just followers. Verse 2, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Perhaps Paul is talking to these followers of John the Baptist and detects that there's something that's not quite right. He begins to poke around with some questions. Now notice what his question assumes. Very important here. Notice at verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
There's a lot of debate about that phrase and how to read the original text, but it's really pretty straightforward, and I think we can take it as translated here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I think that assumes, Paul is assuming, that those who believe in Jesus Christ and are born again receive the Holy Spirit. That's the default mode, modus operandi of Jesus Christ. When a person responds in saving faith, the Spirit of God is poured out, that person is baptized in the Spirit and comes to this knowledge of Jesus. Have you been baptized in the Spirit when you believed? Now John preached that Messiah would baptize his people with the Spirit in fulfillment of passages such as Joel 2. In any event, these Jews undoubtedly knew the Old Testament promises of Spirit baptism. When, he says, when they say, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit, it's either that they have really not heard at all what John the Baptist was preaching because he preached about the outpouring of the Spirit, or it is a case they don't mean that they've not heard about the Spirit of God, but rather they've not heard about the Spirit of God in connection with their conversion and their faith. What they did not know was the baptism of the Spirit in relationship to faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul is probing. So he follows up with another probing question, verse 3. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Remember, John's baptism looks forward to Messiah. John's baptism is anticipating the outpouring of the Spirit. So this question reveals, and its answer reveals, that their faith was not in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're lacking that knowledge. Now, many object here. They say, oh, wait a minute. It says that they're disciples. It says that they believed. But the problem is, is that people don't tend to take this far enough and ask, they are disciples of whom, and they have believed in what? We've got to push it further. Whenever we see people have believed or people are disciples in the text of the New Testament, we must consider the context to know if they are true disciples of Christ or not. There is a belief that's a false belief. There are disciples that, are, that break away from Christ and don't follow Him, let alone disciples of others. So because they've not received the baptism of the Spirit at the time of their conversion, because they have not identified in baptism with the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul concludes that their faith is deficient. Yes, they're disciples. Yes, they're believers. But in what? Verse 4, Paul said, now he teaches, John baptized, the baptism you've received, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. John the Baptist prophesied with the Old Testament prophets that Jesus would baptize his people in the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit would mark the dawning of the Messianic age, and we ask, when did that outpouring take place? It took place Acts 2, at the festival of Pentecost, when the followers, the disciples of Jesus, were baptized in the Spirit. So what we have here are people who apparently do not understand this. They have not experienced this Spirit baptism in any event. 
These followers of John the Baptist are caught in a salvation historical time warp. One pastor refers to them as spiritual Rip Van Winkles. They've got pieces and knowledge of this world and of God's saving work, but they don't get it all. They're missing major parts. And the baptism of the Spirit has not come into their life. Something is desperately wrong. They do not understand that the new age has been ushered in by Jesus. Therefore, they've not been baptized in identification with his death and resurrection. They are essentially Old Testament saints. Verse 5 On hearing this, and I would assume there's much more to what Paul has said. Luke is succinctly summarizing. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think that would be the strongest proof that they are not considered as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Because they receive now Christian baptism. Just a side note, we won't even deal with it, but Apollos did not which might indicate that he was further along in his understanding and that his baptism of John was sufficient for him because he had the Spirit of God evidenced in his fervent spirit. That's another issue to chase at great length if you'd like to. But they're baptized. They are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in verse 5. But God's not done yet at this point and something very unique happens. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now that's unusual. And it certainly should hit us this way, because we've not heard anything like this for some time in the text of Acts. But it brings our attention back to Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, with the apostles of Jesus in Acts 2, and those early disciples. It reminds us of Acts chapter 8, where the Samaritans receive this unique baptism of the Spirit. It reminds us of Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius, the Gentile, receives spirit baptism. As John Stott puts it, Pentecost has caught up to them. Better still, they were caught up into Pentecost. Something unique is happening here. These believers, caught in a time warp, have now been baptized in the name of Christ and subsequently by the Holy Spirit. God demonstrates here uniquely that they have been incorporated into the body of Christ by this dramatic coming of the Spirit. Dramatic displays of Spirit baptism prove that the Samaritans were part of the body of Christ, chapter 8, that the Gentiles could be part of the body of Christ, chapter 10, and here that, if we could say it this way, Old Testament saints coming to Christ as Savior would be part of the church of Jesus Christ. So this scene confirms, along with chapter 8 and 10, that even faithful followers of the Old Covenant must come to God in one way. What is it? Faith in Jesus crucified and risen. Again, we won't take time, but that can be a very offensive concept today. Even followers of the Old Covenant had to come to personal faith in Jesus Christ, and God demonstrates that here by bringing a unique 
emphasis upon the baptism of the Spirit. Now, we branch off of that into something I think we need to discuss as a church and understand in our own development of theology. And that is that many people go to Acts chapter 19 here and they say, this is given so that we will follow what has happened here. It is normative. That is, this is, this is set as a norm for the church. What it means is, you come to saving faith in Christ. Now they would interpret this to be, they were believers, they were disciples of Jesus. You come to saving faith in Jesus. Then you are baptized in water, and later, down the road, you're baptized with the Spirit. There is this second blessing that comes of a spirit baptism sometime after conversion. And we would say, on what authority do you make this claim? Right here in Acts chapter 19. That's exactly what happens here. They know Christ as Savior. They are baptized in water in the name of Christ. And then they, they are baptized in the Spirit. So we should seek the baptism of the, of the Spirit after our conversion. There are many answers to this teaching, but one that I think is most ready, readily available is to just simply go back to Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, when does Cornelius receive the baptism of the Spirit? Before conversion? After conversion? During conversion? What is the relationship of the baptism of the Spirit with his water baptism? In Acts 10, spirit baptism comes before water baptism. Here, in Acts 19, it comes after. In Acts chapter 10, spirit baptism comes at the moment of belief, simultaneous with belief. Here, it comes after. If Acts 19 is normative... It's a pattern we are to follow. Why does the Scripture conflict with itself and not give us this pattern in Acts 10? And I would even argue further on that point, if we're going to look for a norm, would we not go to the Gentiles' baptism in the Spirit rather than to these followers of John the Baptist? What we must understand here, and I think we get a real sense of this, even those who would argue that this is normative and the baptism of the Spirit comes after conversion water baptism, even many of them recognize that Acts is a transitional book. There are things that are just flat out strange in the book of Acts. And we find that strangeness in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, 10, and 19. These unique moments of salvation history. We see utterly no mention of spirit baptism following conversion in the mission at Derby, at Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, Syrian Antioch for that matter, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. Nothing is mentioned about this. In fact, as you go into the rest of the New Testament, there's not a word about this. If this was the normal Christian life, to trust Christ as Savior, follow Him in the waters of baptism, and then go on a path of seeking spirit baptism later, you would think that somewhere along the line, this would be counseled to us in the epistles. It is not. In fact, in most of Acts, it's nowhere 
seen other than in these four unique cases. And so I would argue that what's going on in all four cases is something unique. We have a unique group where there is a question about their relationship to the body of Christ. The initial baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2. But what about the Samaritans in Acts 8? Are they part of the body of Christ? Yes, they are, through Spirit baptism, even Samaritans. What about the Gentiles? Certainly not them. Yes, even the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, Spirit baptism, uniquely displayed. What about these Old Covenant believers? These people who simply haven't put together or received the information about, the, about union with Christ's death and resurrection, yes, even they are added to the church of Jesus Christ, but as they trust the name of Christ and identify with His death and resurrection for their salvation. What's the point? Again, what lies behind this whole passage, what lies behind the Bible study between Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos, and what lies here behind this discussion with these followers of John is that there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. The network of Jesus' people is not comprised of a single person with a deficient view of salvation in Christ. Not one. That's a radical thought, but I think it's a very biblical thought. All who come to God come through the door of Jesus Christ. Through a conscious response to Jesus crucified and risen. Why do you think that Paul is breaking his back to take the message to people? Because they must come to see Christ crucified and risen. They must. And even these must. These followers of Yahweh God and the proclamation of the great John the Baptist, even they must come through faith. This begs a question for us today. Have you been born again? We're very different, certainly, than these followers of John the Baptist, but you know it is very possible for us to come here and to know a lot of Christian doctrine. As these disciples of John demonstrate, knowing basic facts is not enough to be born again. Have you genuinely repented in abject spiritual poverty of your sin, idolatry, and self-dependence? Have you really turned to Christ? Are you confident that you know the truth of the gospel? And do those truths, have they taken root in your heart and transformed you? If not, today you must seek someone to open the scriptures, to consider anew the message of the gospel of Christ, to receive prayers of believers in Jesus, and to come to salvation today. The formation of this worldwide web of the gospel continues, and I will land on this just briefly, but we find in verse 8, Paul proclaiming Jesus to the Ephesians, doing the very work that Apollos is doing, that he's done with these twelve in Ephesus. We find that he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is an unprecedented length of stay at a synagogue for Paul. It evidences a degree of unique receptivity 
Aquila and Priscilla have already been here. Apollos has already been preaching, and yet Paul gains three months with these people in the synagogue. But, of course, this also will come to an end. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, a reference to the Christian life, before the congregation, probably there in the synagogue, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So as in Corinth, the Jews resist. Paul goes outside the synagogue. He begins to teach Jews and Gentiles in another location. Here in a lecture hall owned by Tyrannus. That is, in the English, the tyrant. He was either a landlord who was known as a businessman in that city, or he was a philosopher whose students dubbed him the tyrant. Uh, either way, both work. I think we've all got examples coming to our mind's eye, don't we? <laughs> he was a tyrant. Longenecker has a lot of fun with this when he says, we must assume that his parents did not name him the tyrant, which would only be possible, quote, in certain bleak moments of parenthood. <laughs> Probably not, probably a nickname, but what is key here is the tyrant, his lecture hall, is made available to the Apostle Paul. Philosophers would typically teach in the cool hours of the morning from 7 until 11, and in particularly these summer months when we assume that that is when Paul was here, in these summer months there would be the hard work of the day from 7 to 11, then the leisure time of the day actually came not at the end of the night, but at, in the middle of the day, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And he would take a nap. They would gather with their families at large meal of the day. Then at 4 o'clock, they'd go back to work until dark and then go to bed. There is an extraneous tradition that Paul taught during that hot period of the day when people had leisure to come, 11 to 4 that he was lecturing like a seminary professor there in this lecture hall, which was ideally situated and a tremendous tool from which the gospel is able to spring forth Ephesus and beyond, to Ephesus and beyond. Paul's teaching was uniquely blessed, and he furthers the branches of the worldwide web of faith. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. A major road running north and south through Ephesus. Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, controlling the hinterland to the east. Many people pass through here. There is a web of roads leading to and away from Ephesus. So many are coming, hearing the gospel, then on those very same roads, taking the gospel back. And there are churches now that are being started that Paul never visits. Has no part in their establishment, recognizes them, such as the church at Colossae, the church at Philadelphia. There's churches that are forming. The web is expanding and God is involving more and more people in this great work. So at great personal cost, Paul took the gospel into all kinds of places, but in the providence of God, at this place, he had the best of all worlds because the world was coming to him at Ephesus. Sending them out, the network was growing, it was deepening, and it still is. And I wonder, as we close our thoughts on this section 
of Paul's third missionary journey. Do we as believers, do you as a believer, do we as a church walk about life with an awareness of this gospel web? Does it factor in to our daily thoughts? I would imagine that every one of us could list something on a piece of paper right now that has taken up more thought and attention this week than this concept. We're far more aware of the world wide web on the internet than we are of the web of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly I speak to somebody here who thought a whole lot more about a car that's not working or a bill that's got to get paid or a child that's out of line or a parent that's out of line this week than we've thought about the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a project we concentrate on occasionally. The mission of Jesus is going on every day across this planet. Is there a real awareness that we are part of that web, part of that network? Are you praying in such a way that indicates you know you're part of that system? Pleading with the God of the harvest to send out labors, to give courage and boldness to us here and to others that we don't even know who are proclaiming the gospel in other places. Do we have a protectionistic sense of our own church, of our own private devotional life, or do we understand that we are part of this great web? Paul, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, the churches that are expanding beyond Ephesus, the connections that are being made over in Achaia, Evidence is already in Rome and moving beyond across into the English Isles and someday to the New World and from the New World to the Southern Hemisphere and across to the East. This network is forming, it's deepening, and Jesus is continuing to win people to Himself. That should be ever-present in our awareness. I don't mean that we will always concentrate on missions. It's impossible to do. In fact, if you're working with heavy equipment, you can't do that at times, right? There's things we do, we can't fully concentrate on some particular aspect of missionary service. But as we're very aware of the presence of the World Wide Web, may we be even more fully aware of the constant spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do I know that that awareness is there? I must hurry. I don't have time to set on this. But if we're aware, I'll say just three things and be done. We will, with singular devotion and self-abdicating humility, conform our lives and doctrine to the central core of the apostolic faith. We will seek to remain doctrinally healthy to encourage the whole system. Do you get that? Doctrine is not a private playground where I can mess around with ideas and develop theology according to what I like. True doctrine is, and as we preserve it as a church and defend it as a church, is an endeavor to keep the system pure. There are those that are discarding true doctrine and saying what matters more is the web itself 
the network of Christians that we all accommodate one another and adjust to one another and open wide our doors to whatever lifestyle, belief, or whatever it is, what they're doing is corrupting the system. It's a sin virus that keeps the gospel from spreading purely. And it's one of the reasons that we struggle to see it spread here. There's so much moral and doctrinal compromise to the network. If we really have a sense of it, we will be pursuing this core doctrine to know it, to keep it pure, that the gospel may flow freely through us. Secondly, we will appreciate, encourage, support, and pursue courageous dissemination of the gospel. You may never touch the world wide web in this life. And I would just as well commend you for that as anything else. That's great. But when it comes to this network of the gospel, we all need to get online. We need to join in on the work and roll up our sleeves and become part in some way, shape, or form of the dissemination of the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, if we really have this awareness, we will humbly participate in fraternal networks of believers, selflessly partnering together in the gospel, not with turf wars and look how great we are and look who we've claimed or what we've done, but partnering with others to accomplish the work of the gospel. We should leave today, believer, rejoicing that we are members of this great network on this planet. Rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is mighty to save sinners from hell. That He is reigning in glory and that He is coming again. And that by His grace, as He has given us the Spirit of life, we have the privilege to be part of this network, this family, this task. May He find us busily strengthening this gospel web until He comes or calls us home. And if you are separated from it, I plead with you by the mercies of Christ that you would turn to Jesus Christ in faith today. We would be happy to counsel, to direct, to encourage you that way as you leave, speak with someone. To join the fraternity of those who know their sins are forgiven and that they have a meeting with God in eternity that will go on in joy forever and ever. Is the privilege that is there, is the calling that is there, turn and come to Christ today. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, how short we fall of involvement in this great work, of awareness of it, And Lord, I pray in behalf of those perhaps who do not even know of it, who do not experientially understand the baptism of the Spirit of God. I pray that we would know of our washing by His presence and rejoice together in this great task to which You've called us to spread that truth and that Word through the world. Strengthen this church to do this very thing. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen.